is a second loneliness, you could call it that way. And maybe it is precisely the fact that you have found a home and feel deeply loved. There is still a hole when you have found a home. Pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together. We have to understand that we're not each other's enemy. We have to say, let's move forward. It can feel daunting to not be perfect when you've got all these like perfect people. People aren't perfect, no one's perfect. Hi, kia ora. my name is Eric and it's uh, my privilege to welcome you here this morning. Thanks for coming out this morning and for being here. Listen, in the last two and a half days, uh, we've witnessed some stunning events in the news, haven't we? Uh, the people of Great Britain, they have voted to leave the European Union. Who would have thought that that would happen? The Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, he resigned just within moments of the outcome of that vote being confirmed. Who would have thought about that? Uh, and then, you know, my wife Karen and I, when we, were, when we were watching CNN live, where they then moments later the camera cuts to the governor of the Bank of New Zealand, who uh, stands before the press and uh, wants to reassure the banking community that the Bank of England is strong and that this is not like uh, the global financial crisis of a few years ago. And he, he gave a technical explanation about the bank. And basically what he was trying to say was that there might be a political crisis, but there's not going to be a banking crisis. And then what happened later on Friday? Uh, the British pound sterling dropped in value uh, 10% against the US dollar, uh, the largest fall in its lowest amount since 1985, uh, due to fears that, that the big decision could hit investment in the world's fifth largest economy, threaten London's role as a, a global financial capital, and usher in months of political uncertainty. Also, by the end of Friday, wait till you hear this, world stocks had dropped in value by $2 trillion. $2 trillion they had dropped. European stocks ended down 7%, which was the biggest one-day fall since 2008. And what were the main reasons for this, uh, this Brexit, uh, Britain leaving the EU? Uh, what did a majority of people why did they vote to leave the European Union? Uh, a Reuters press release on Friday night said this, quote, the four-month campaign was among the most divisive ever waged in Britain, with accusations of lying and scaremongering on both sides and rows over immigration, which critics said at times unleashed overt racism. At the darkest hour, a pro-EU member of parliament was stabbed and shot to death in the street. The suspect later told a court his name was, quote, death to traitors, freedom for Britain, unquote. The Reuters article continued, the campaign revealed deep splits in British society, with the pro-Brexit side drawing support from voters who felt left behind by globalization and blamed EU immigration for low wages, end of quote. And so Britain's been plunged into a time of just huge uncertainty. And in fact, it's a good time for us to stop and pray uh, for this nation. So would you join with me in prayer? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the gift of prayer. We thank you that you invite us, you urge us to pray for the nations of the world. Lord, your word clearly teaches us that you're a sovereign God and you, you rule in the affairs of mankind. And that as sovereign God, you have destinies assigned to nations. And God, we think about Great Britain. We think about all that it has done and all that it is. We're grateful for it. And yet we acknowledge that you have plans and purposes for this nation, God. And so we want to speak out that you, God, would accomplish your plans and purposes. Not the will of the forces of evil or even of human beings, but that you, God, would accomplish your plans and purposes. God, we pray that in this time of great uncertainty that our brothers and sisters in Jesus will rise up and make a difference um, all throughout the land, that they will bring hope to people who are anxious and nervous. They'll bring the light of your truth, God, that God is a loving God, that, that you died on a cross and rose again from the dead for, for every person, and that you're the one who can change that nation. And so, God, would you uh, move afresh by your spirit all throughout Great Britain at this time? We ask this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen, Amen. All right, so Britain is experiencing... Uh, tremendous uh, upheaval like nothing we've seen in decades. And, you know, these serious social issues that have simmered for years, they're just uh, starting to explode out and to propel a time of change in the nation. And who's going to lead the nation? What kind of leadership is going to be required to lead the nation at such a significant time? If only Britons could look backwards 110 years, they would find they had a courageous hero who led against insurmountable odds in changing the very fabric of British society. He almost single-handedly brought England out of a time of very dark, uh, spiritually and moral darkness uh, throughout England. This was not William Wilberforce. It was another William. William Booth was his name. And when I was invited to uh, speak on this significant series and to think about someone in Christian history that had impacted me, there were a lot of names that sprang to mind. Um, and I remembered in my early 20s reading a, a biography written by a guy um, called Collier. It was called, the book was called The General Next to God. And as I read that book, maybe some of you have read it, uh, I was just profoundly shaken as I read it. It was a biography of William Booth, a man who passionately loved Jesus. He deeply believed that lost people mattered to God and who by devoting his whole life to that belief, he started a worldwide movement that continues to this very day. Well, you know, that book, it, it shocked me because I found in it page after page, people who took enormous risks for God. They had incredible zeal for God. And then just a few short years, they changed England. They actually changed it. They changed laws. They changed factory conditions. They changed living conditions. They operated on every single level of society because of their great passion. They believed that people were made in the image of God 
and that Jesus died on a cross for every person and that every person had value and worth and dignity and didn't matter what their situation was. I remember reading that book and at one point just breaking down in tears and then sobbing as God just broke my heart for a lost and hurting world. You know, William Booth was a man whose life was completely shaped by this well-known story in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 34. Luke 10, verses 30 to 34. Where I want you to hear it from the voice translation. It should be up on the screen. And Jesus replied, This fellow was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers mugged him. They took his clothes, beat him to a pulp, and left him naked and bleeding and in critical condition. By chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed by. Then a Levite who was on his way to assist in the temple also came and saw the victim lying there. He too kept his distance. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. When he saw the fellow, he felt compassion for him. The Samaritan went over to him, stopped the bleeding, applied some first aid, and put the fellow on his donkey. He brought the man to an inn and cared for him through the night. And Jesus finishes the story by saying that that man, he gave extra money to the innkeeper just to make sure that the guy was going to be okay. And you know, for us today, the power and the impact of this story, it's just lost on us, isn't it? Because it's a cross-cultural story. And I think an equivalent would be this. Most of us here, we've been to Bethlehem Town Center just up the road. It would be, think of a, a, a business guy wearing a suit, a Pacquiao business guy. He comes to Bethlehem Town Center, steps out of his car, steps onto one of the sidewalks to go into a shop. A guy jumps out and stabs him with a knife and reaches and finds his wallet and then just runs off, leaving the guy for dead. Then, as the guy's lying there bleeding, this, this van pulls up. And in the van are some BBC pastors and staff members. And um, we happen to see this guy lying there with blood coming out, obviously attacked and dying perhaps. And yet, we're in a hurry because we've got some stuff we've got to do there uh, because we've got a church service starting soon. And so we ignore him and we go about our business and we come back here and do what we're doing. And then moments later, this beat up old vehicle arrives and out steps a guy covered in tats and he's, he's a striking Mahdi guy. In fact, he's a mongrel mob gang leader. And he sees the guy lying there and he goes straight to him and uh, grabs him, helps him, and he maybe rips something off so he can stop the bleeding that's, that's going out of the guy's body. And he helps the guy up into his vehicle, helps him in, and then drives him straight to A&E at the hospital and watches him get admitted into hospital while they're doing emergency work on him. And then this mongrel mob guy just hangs around and stays around the hospital until he knows that the guy has made it and that he's going to be okay. Does that sound kind of preposterous? Yep, it kind of does. And that's what Jesus meant by that story. It was meant to sound that way. And that brings us to this uh, character who's significant in our story today. William Booth, he was born in 1829 in Nottingham, England. His dad's business fell on hard times. 
and the family basically lived in poverty. And as a last-ditch effort, his dad sent young William off at 13 years old to work in a pawnbroker's shop. And it was here that William met hundreds of people who came in to sell their jewelry or whatever they could in order to clothe and feed themselves. And as he listened to their stories, something deep stirred within him. And it planted seeds where he thought, you know, when I get bigger and older, I'm going to do what I can to help these kind of people. At 15 years old, uh, he was in a Methodist church and he heard the good news of new life in Jesus. And he came to know Jesus for himself. Um, Very soon after, he decided to dedicate himself to God. And this is what he said. He said, God shall have all there is of William Booth. Now that dedication was very important because time and time again, he was going to rededicate his life to God. And it was going to form the foundation of what was going to happen in his future. And it's an example to us of why it's important for us to respond to God when he comes knocking on the door in our lives. You know why that is, folks? Because we just don't know what God might do in us and through us. We don't know. Each one of us here, we can be a history maker just like that song that we were singing. We can, we can if we just respond to God's voice when he comes to us. Young William read widely and he was inspired to become a speaker and a missionary to save souls. Uh, he believed that those who rejected Jesus Christ as Savior were condemned to hell. He saw his life as a, as a mission to save as many people as possible. You remember that he was in Victorian England as a young man. And Victorian England was a really nasty and hard place to live. The Industrial Revolution was causing huge upheaval. Uh, where there was the vast working class were running factories. And you had super rich land barons that were exploiting the poor. You had people from rural communities flooding into the cities causing massive housing problems with overcrowding common and all the related health issues that go along with overcrowding. In fact, some of that, in a smaller way, has been in our news recently, hasn't it? Here in Tauranga and, of course, uh, up in Auckland. Who's seen the movie or the musical Oliver? A few people here? Yeah, yeah. Well, Charles Dickens' story of Oliver Twist, it happened at the same era as young William Booth. And at that time, many people could not afford medical treatment. If someone was uh, too sick to work, well, that was it. You didn't work, you you didn't get paid. Children as young as eight years old had to work for up to 14 hours a day. Can you imagine that? Children as young as eight had to work for up to 14 hours a day. Basically, children were like slave labor. People were paid unfair wages, and there was just no way out of poverty. Alcoholism and prostitution flourished. By 1857, there were an estimated 8,500 prostitutes in London alone. By 1849, a young William was beginning to preach the gospel. After preaching to the poor and sinners in Nottingham, Booth wanted to leave his pawnbroking job, which he felt was sinful. In 1849, he left Nottingham to seek employment in London as a lay preacher. Would you think there was a lot of jobs going as lay preachers in London at that time? No, there weren't. Um, And so Booth took to doing open-air evangelism in in the poor parts of London where he knew he might be able to find people that might listen to him. (laughs) 
1852, he met and married Catherine Mumford. She was a passionate Christ follower. And in Catherine, Booth found a committed and a remarkable partner in ministry. And that's often the case, isn't it? That uh, behind every great man is what? A greater woman, right? And so that was very true in the case of Catherine Mumford. Because from an early age, she was a, a sensitive and serious girl who had a really strong Christian upbringing. In fact, by the time she was 12 years old, listen up to those of you who might be 12 or maybe slightly older. By the time she was 12, she had read the Bible straight through eight times. Eight times. So tell that to your children or your grandchildren, okay, as, as a challenge. In fact, it's really inspiring for us as Christian parents as we're raising our children. Um, because eventually William and Catherine, they had eight children, and you'd think that that was enough work for Catherine, right? Well, no, it wasn't. Catherine became a preacher herself. And that was very unusual for a woman to be preaching at that time in the late 1800s uh, in England. But she was a passionate preacher. She believed that women should have equal rights to men. And in fact, when Booth first formed his mission agency, they wrote in its charter that women had the exact same rights as men and that women could do anything in Christian ministry that men could do. How about that? That was pretty radical. Uh, for its time. It's still kind of radical today, in fact, in some places. Um, well, Catherine also designed the flag and parts of the uniform for the Salvation Army. She worked with alcoholics, and she started her own campaigns to help the poor and the needy. She was an amazing woman of God. There's a story told that Catherine was just standing by a, a lamppost uh, in London, and this man presumed that she was a street worker. And so he came up to her, and he said, he said to her, um, where shall we meet? And she said to him, at the judgment seat of God. <laughs> and uh, that was indicative of what she was like, because she, she was a force. There was a reason that uh, she came to be called the Army Mother, uh, which was her name. And in fact, when she died in 1890, her funeral was one of the largest that Victorian London had ever seen. She's an amazing person. But you ask, what about this Salvation Army? How did it come about? Well, William Booth, he was traveling around England, preaching kind of wherever he could. And one evening in 1865, he was preaching outside a pub in the east end of London when uh, some Christians came to him and said, hey, we've got a tent over there. Why don't you come over and speak in this tent? And he, he started speaking, and he realized, oh my gosh, I'm speaking to people that I would never get to speak to in church. And in fact, I really love this. And that's where he found his destiny, because he realized that's who he was called to reach. It wasn't people in churches like this. It was people that didn't know God and would, might never hear the message of him. Um, and so he founded his own movement that he called the Christian Mission. That was its name. And so in the early days of the Christian mission, he was preparing a report, and he was talking to his secretary, George Railton, and they actually had a clerical error where they ended up calling it the Salvation Army. So they changed the name. And where Booth, he realized that the military motif could work really well for mobilizing Christians. And so the Salvation Army was modeled after the military with its own flag, its own hymns, and often with words set to popular tunes, that were being sung in pubs uh, or just all around the place. 
and I think mo most of you might know that, but something you may not know is it was William Booth who said, why should the devil have all the good music? All right, did you know that? Yeah, it was him. He said it slightly differently in kind of a Victorian type of English. Um, but that's, he was the one that said that because he felt that, oh my gosh, music belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the devil. And um, if those are popular tunes, well, let's take those popular tunes and let's put Christian words and messages to them and get them out there in the public. And that was radical for the time uh, there in England. In fact, it was only decades later that Cliff Richard decided to use those words. Um, those of you that know him, why should the devil have all the good music? All right, well, Booth and his other soldiers in God's army, they wore uniforms, they'd wear them out in ministry, they'd wear them in meetings, and he became the general. And his other ministers, they had appropriate ranks like officers and soldiers. In fact, even to this day, the Salvation Army wears uniforms, and you might be someone here, if, you, if you've met someone in a Salvation Army uniform, put your hand up. If you've met them or seen them, there you go. Yep, so, so there's still to this day. All right, by 1874, William Booth, he had 47 evangelists and 1,000 volunteers. But Booth was passionate about the poor. His ministry philosophy was to reach the down and outs through three S's. Uh, soup, soap, and salvation. All right? Yep, soup, soap, and salvation. That was a very simple kind of method, but that's what they did. With the help of his son Bramwell, William Booth began to set up cheap food stores, shelters for homeless people to sleep in, cheap breakfasts for children. Members of the Salvation Army would also visit the elderly and the sick in their homes. However, William Booth wanted to do more. He wanted to find permanent solutions to poverty. In the 1880s, it was discovered that match factories were paying low wages, not giving their workers tea or lunch breaks, using dangerous chemicals which caused disease or death. So in 1890, what did William Booth do? We set up his own match factory, and he used safe chemicals, and he paid fair wages to his workers. He also campaigned for a change in the law, and he encouraged shopkeepers to buy his matches, not matches from other manufacturers. All the other match factories were forced to improve their conditions, or they would go out of business. And so Booth was able to then close his factory, having achieved his aim. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, that's the kingdom of God at work right there in a very practical way. But William Booth, he was just getting started. He wanted to change the whole of England. His goal was to transform the society by breaking the cycle of poverty in which thousands and thousands of people were trapped. And so he created a, a manifesto. He published a book in 1890. It was called In Darkest England and the Way Out. It was a comprehensive program of social reform. In this publication, William Booth argued that the poorest slums of England were little better than the homes and hovels in Africa. And that was a shocking thing to British people at the time, who thought Britain was far superior uh, to Africa. As part of his vision, he planned to set up a farm colony where the poor and destitute could learn new skills and get back into employment. He also set up a missing persons bureau where people could find lost relatives. Isn't that cool? He created more hostels for the homeless, and he set up a poor man's bank to give loans so that workers could start a business. 
microenterprise, what we call that today. Or, sorry, is that right? Microenterprise, microloans, really. But microloans, you thought were something new. Well, they were doing that in the late 1800s, Salvation Army was. You know, there's a lot more to his plan, but we can't go into it now. William Booth and his comrades, they dove into their work with an incredible zeal and intensity, almost unlike anything seen since the book of Acts. Now, you might think I'm exaggerating, but listen to what Booth and his, his team, his relatively small group of people, accomplished in just nine years. They served 27 million cheap meals. 27 million meals. They traced 18,000 missing people and connected them with their families. They provided shelter for 11 million homeless people. 11 million. Let that sink in when you think about the homeless debate that's happening right now in our town and in New Zealand. They found jobs for 9,000 unemployed people. And that was not easy to do because of the poverty that was rife at the time. And all of that activity, they kept Christ at the center with a relentless focus they had on bringing people to faith in Jesus. And so it was the two hands of the gospel of helping people with very practical and pressing needs while also sharing the good news of eternal life in Jesus. It was a very powerful combination. But you know, all that outreach generated some pretty serious opposition, and it was sometimes violent. Opponents used the name the Skeleton Army, and they would follow the marching bands around or the Salvationists as they were doing things, and they would throw rocks and bricks, and they would throw rats and tar, and they would physically assault the uh, Salvation Army workers. And as well, the established church just did not get what William Booth was doing. He just didn't get it. Uh, the main converts of the Salvation Army, they were alcoholics, morphine addicts, prostitutes. They were undesirables who were unwelcome in polite British society. And that helped William Booth to start some new churches because he thought, well, if the established churches aren't going to welcome these people, we still want to teach them the Bible and teach them the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you may not have known that, but that's how the Salvation Army churches began. It was a way to, to, to reach and train the people that they reached. All right, so what about New Zealand? What happened here? Well, you know, our Salvation Army story is pretty amazing. New Zealand in the late 1880s, it was a country of rich potential. It was settler society. But there was an economic depression happening, and it created unemployment, poverty, social distress, and violence. And there were people in New Zealand actually appealed to William Booth to send some people down here. And he did that. He sent two people, two officers, Captain George Pollard and Lieutenant Edward Wright. And they arrived with a bank draft of 200 pounds and three volunteer Australian Salvationists. You know what they did? They formed two little teams uh, where one little team went up to the top of the country, one other team went to the bottom of the country. And they said, let's meet in a year's time in Wellington which they did, and they wanted to see what would happen. So when they met in Wellington a year later, what do you think they had accomplished? They had established 21 centers, like churches or centers around New Zealand. They had 5,000 people participating uh, in, in their Salvation Army works. That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. And the Sallies, they're still going strong today in this country. They have a significant influence in our society, and even at the central government level, where they advise government on issues associated with poverty and child health 
and the vulnerable people of our society. All right, there's a lot more I could say, but when William Booth died in 1912, the Salvation Army was operating in 58 countries. 58 countries. So in 45 years, this thing grew from a couple, William and Catherine Booth, to operating with thousands of officers touching millions of lives in 58 countries. It's incredible. And when William Booth was promoted to glory, as they called death in the Salvation Army, in August of 1912, in Canada, the Toronto Mail and Globe newspaper told its readers this, quote, William Booth accomplished in his lifetime a task of such world magnitude as commanded not recognition alone, but sincere personal admiration from three British sovereigns and won the reverent affection of an innumerable host of every nation of mankind. The New York Times put it more simply, quote, no man of his time did more for the benefit of the people than William Booth. You know, the scale of the reaction uh, to his promotion to glory of, of the Salvation Army's founder is difficult to grasp today. Who of us here remember when Princess Diana passed away? Put your hand up if you remember that, that big moment. Many of us here, yeah, we can remember. I remember where I was sitting um, and watching the TV when that happened. And her funeral had like a million people, right, that were in the streets of London. When William Booth's um, casket was drawn by horses through the streets of London, there were so many people that they, they literally, the police officially stopped traffic from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. There was at least 2 million people that came out to see um, this man, who just was a humble man that had started his life in poverty. Um, Richard Collier, the biographer of the book that I mentioned at the beginning, The General Next to God, he records that 40,000 people attended William Booth's funeral. Among the vast crowd were, quote, thieves, tramps, harlots, the lost and outcast, to whom Booth had given his heart. Also there, sitting unnoticed by many at the rear of the hall, was Queen Mary herself, wife of King George V. She was actually kind of incognito because um, she wanted to come to the funeral. This was as clear a message as any that this man who'd begun his work among the outcasts of society, he had touched the hearts, maybe even the consciences, of even the most privileged people. About six months before William Booth passed away, he gave his final speech. In part of that speech, he said this, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hung hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is one drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. William Booth was one person who took the Good Samaritan story literally. He took it at its face value. His life was consumed by compassion. Compassion for the lost. Compassion for people trapped in addictions. Compassion for people trapped in the cycle of poverty. Compassion because lost people matter to God. And what about this organization today, this amazing mission that he started by one man who took risks for God? As of September 2015, the Salvation Army operates in 127 countries, 
provides services in 175 different languages. It has close to 1.5 million soldiers, more than 17,000 active officers, more than 105,000 employees, more than 3.5 million volunteers. It serves more than 27 million people each year. It's now one of the world's largest providers of social aid with an operational budget close to, what you hear this, $3.5 billion. One man born in poverty in Nottingham in 1829. And so that brings it to us here today in this room and for those who might be hearing my voice. What is there in our circumstances or in our situations that God has put in our sphere of influence where we can make a change, we can make a difference? You and I may not be a William Booth, but you can be you. You can be a history maker like that song that we were singing. Do lost people matter to us like they matter to God? It was Jesus who said to us, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. You know, I'm convinced that in 21st century New Zealand, good deeds are one of the most powerful ways that we can help our neighbors and our co-workers and people in our society who are never going to come to a church building, help them to take some steps closer to the Jesus that we've come to know. Do you agree with me? Some of you do. But I've, I've been thinking about this for years and years, my friends. Thinking about what is it that can help our fellow people in our nation to take steps closer. And I've seen time and again where good deeds make a difference. It's partly why I'm excited about Good Neighbor, which is something that was birthed out of this church. And Good Neighbor does the most great work out there in Tauranga. Because you know what Good Neighbor does? Good Neighbor creates goodwill. It creates an environment whereby people can say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing these good deeds? And we can then talk about God's love. We can talk about his hope. I'm excited about the ability of this church to partner with Good Neighbor uh, in leveraging the geographic footprint of this church. I'm in conversation with Campbell Hill about launching something as part of church care because we go up to Caddy Caddy, out to Papamoa, and all the geography in between. And we can actually set up a system of care that leverages where all of us live in this great place. And we, we can see needs in our neighborhood, and we can actually make a difference if we become part of a network and we know that my brothers and sisters in Christ can make a difference. So be on the watch out for some news about this thing we're going to call local reach. I'm inspired by my colleague Brian Kirby, who has a vision to serve the Fade Kura, which is right here in our area. Brian's come to realize that there's people that they come and they don't get meals before they come to school, and food's available, but there's, we need people to serve meals. And Brian has a passion for that. And so I have a question to you. What are the social ills? What are the problems that are most pressing in Tauranga right now? 
Is the main need homelessness, like the Bay of Plenty Times has told us over a number of issues? Is it pee addiction? Is it violence, family violence? Violence to children? What is it? How might we as Christ followers show compassion via good deeds and help to bring people to Christ? And what might God be saying to you about your part in his plan to reach a lost and hurting world? Because maybe you can't set up a mission agency, but you can affect your neighbor through a, a good deed or a coworker who's hurting. What's in your sphere of influence? I'm going to invite the band to come out. And as they do, I'd invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are the beneficiaries, God, of your love. That God so loved the world that he did what? Finish it with me, everybody. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you became one of us that you took the initiative. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on a cross, that you rose again from the dead, that you're alive forevermore. We thank you, Jesus, that even though you were in the Garden of Gethsemane crying to your Father, saying, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? That you chose, Jesus, to die that death, to shed your blood, to bring the forgiveness of sins, to rise again from the dead, and to make a new and living way so that all of us, all people for all time, can come to know you, God, to have eternal life with you, both in the future and today. God, we thank you that you loved us that much. We thank you, Jesus, that you were focused on seeking and saving the lost. That was your purpose. We thank you for this example of William Booth, one life dedicated to you. God, we thank you that you love us, and yet, God, you've blessed us to make us a blessing. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here or who might watch this video at some point in the future. You, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? And would I be responsive? Would we be responsive to what it is that you're saying to us? Thank you.